An Honorable Profession is brought to you by Tech for America, an organization dedicated to providing a platform to solve America's toughest public challenges. For more information, visit t4a.org. That's t, the number four, a.org. Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal podcast that features rising state and local leaders. We talk about why people ran for office, how they're restoring trust in government, as well as sanity to politics in an insane era. Today, we're talking with Elizabeth Brown. She's a Columbus City Councilwoman, a strong advocate for family leave, and you heard it here first, she's the person you're going to be voting for for president in 2036. She's just that good. Liz and I are both members of New Deal. It's an organization that brings together more than 150 of the best and brightest elected officials. Check out newdealleaders.org. And if you like what we're doing, please consider telling a friend about an honorable profession and rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. With that, let's get to Liz. She was elected in November of 2015 to the Columbus City Council, and she's the executive director of the Ohio Women's Public Policy Network. When we were researching you, my uh, student who did the research came back and said, Liz Brown is superwoman. You don't understand. <laughs> she uh, she re- jumped into a race when she was seven months pregnant. She had a debate two days after she had a child. She's pushing parental leave. She's doing amazing things at City Hall. Tell us a little bit about your decision to run, and then uh, then, w- then I want to get into some of the work, good work that you're doing. Well, it's very nice of your student. Um, the debate was three days postpartum, not two days. <laughs> <laughs> Makes all the difference. Right, for the sake of accuracy. Um, so when I decided to run, uh, it actually came on the heels of sort of attempting um, to get into office unsuccessfully a couple times first. So I realized I wanted to run after doing policy work at the local level. I love local government. I know that you can identify with that. Absolutely. Um, there's a lot of transformative power when it's you where work that where all the good close. stuff happens. It's right. It's right. There was an appointment open for a seat to city council, which I applied for and I didn't get. And I knew that... Um, there was no sure thing. So I did it with eyes wide open. I was okay not getting it, but it helped me kind of own the fact that this was my ambition. I do think that part of running for office is getting comfortable saying, I want to be an elected official. Uh, it's not always a, a comfortable thing to start with. So then- And can I ask, is in terms of finding that voice, is that an internal thing or an external conversation or is it both? I think it's both. Um, I think a lot of times when we talk about women running for office, there is a there's a common refrain that those who recruit women sometimes use, which is we have to ask women a lot of times to run for office. We have woman has to be asked average of fill in the blank seven times, thirteen times. I hear different numbers. I really hate that, and I try never to lead with that message because I think when we tell women that they're so, it's almost underneath that we're saying you're supposed to be asked. Someone else has to give you permission to have ambition to run for office. Uh, We kind of assign women uh, 
the expectation of humility a little bit more than men. And so that's why I found it a little difficult to kind of get out there and say, I, I want to run for office. I want to be an elected official someday. I really want to be a city council member. But once I went through that process of trying and not succeeding, then when the um, seat was open for me to actually run, even though I was seven months pregnant, I had gotten very comfortable saying this is a goal. And um, I had a good sense of how I was going to do it too. And so, yeah, tell me about that first race. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You know, campaigning campaigning is hard. Campaigning while you're pregnant, uh, I would imagine, is, is even <laughs> you more done hard. That I have not. I have not. <laughs> I drag my I drag my six and three year old around all my events right now, uh, and that's a different kind of challenge because yeah. they, they can run yes. uh, <laughs> during the events. But um, but tell me about that first run, uh, a successful run, and and what it was like, and then. And then we'll get into your service. Yeah, absolutely. So um, an incumbent Democrat uh, dropped out of the race about 90 days before the election. And we had a very short window to appoint someone in her place, or we would have ceded the race to the Republicans. Um, So I immediately threw my hat in and... um, was put on the ballot. I had 85 days to run my campaign and my baby was due in like 70 days. So I knew that I had to quite simply bust my ass um, in order to get across the finish line. The The rest of the folks running, um, the other Democrats on the ballot had, because there was a primary season and all that, they'd been out there getting their names out there for months. Um, so every waking hour. I just worked really hard and I was lucky to have a healthy pregnancy. You know, I, I don't, I know that it's not simply because one one woman does it or I did it in a certain way doesn't mean that's possible for everybody. I had a really healthy pregnancy. I will say my daughter was, um, she arrived eight days late. And so I had suddenly, we had not scheduled a lot of things for that time. And suddenly I had like eight days of found time. I did a ton of call time and I, you know, raised a big spurt of money. And um, all told, um, I raised about $225,000 in those 85 days. Um, And once the baby came, I had a couple events that I really had to be at, such as the debate um, and a couple important kind of uh, meeting or grassroots activities. But I kind of bridged those two weeks with mostly just care for my baby. That's where I needed to be. Wow. And then now that you're elected, you bring, you bring a, an important perspective to the city council, uh, being a young mom, uh, being somebody who's really engaged in policy in her day job, and we'll get to that in a second. But uh, tell me about some of the efforts you've made on city council around uh, supporting young families, but then also just, just around general promoting equity and other other issues in your city. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for saying that. Well, um, I I do uh, really value my experience as a mom uh, in terms of how I view the policy imperatives that our city has. So one of the first things I worked on when I came to council was an issue I had been advocating for years on, um, actually, which is paid family leave. I was in my 
job prior to running for office. I didn't have paid family leave and I um, was a union member and I got my union to sponsor a study on the state of paid family leave in Ohio so we could take that around to people and, um, and lobby for better policies. So when I got elected to council, we worked on a paid family leave policy for the more than 8,000 families that um, work for the city of Columbus. And we were very deliberate about the kind of policy we wanted to pass. I did not want to just check the box and say I got something done without it being the right something. And uh, building that coalition to pass a policy that wasn't just geared at new moms, but really looked at what families need uh, was not as easy as it sounds. You know, we're all Democrats um, around City Hall, but you still got to deal with it's really about we're an employer of 8,000 people. I mean, it's not. It, it doesn't lack its complexities. So our policy is um, inclusive of new moms, new dads, um, whether you adopted your child, whether it's two moms and two dads. Um, and then it also, uh, we did a pilot program for people who need to care for an aging or ill loved one. There are... Um, uh, 10,000 people turn 65 every day in our country. And there's really a looming crisis um, of family care and how women in particular balance those needs. Now, our, our policy is gender blind, of course, but the reality is women take on a disproportionate amount of caregiving duties. MetLife did a study that showed women lose on average about $300,000 in lifetime earnings because of their disproportionate um, portion of caregiving duties that they take on. And are you seeing traction around this issue, at least around Ohio and and around the country? Because it is, it's, it's, it's vital to the, to the to not only organizations and to people's lives, but also to society as a whole. Yep. Um, we are seeing more traction outside of Ohio. Um, a couple states have passed a version. Um, and, and we have candidates now on the national scale that talk about paid family leave. And not everybody talks about it in, in the right way. Not everybody has the right solution, but you know, the Family Act has been introduced in the Senate. Um, there are some good ideas out there. In Ohio, we are seeing more and more local um, jurisdictions adopt the policy. So Dayton, Cincinnati, a suburb of Cleveland called Newburgh Heights, us at the city of Columbus, um, Franklin County, which is the county we're in. So we're seeing some movement. Um, we're also seeing private sector movement. The danger there is that overall, under 20% of American workers have access to paid family leave. But if you drill down and look at low-wage workers, only 4% have access. So the, the, the problem with just sort of leaving it up to independent momentum to kind of take care of um, their own uh, people as an employer is so often you see um, the white collar jobs get the policy. And even if within the same company, the, you know, the warehouse workers or the field employees don't get the benefit. And frankly, we're just exacerbating income inequality and lack of a level playing field for all kids when we do that. So it's a big issue and it's important in support, just supporting the young families. Uh, Tell me about, you know, uh, the city of Columbus is 900,000 people. Yeah. Uh, you ha you're elected citywide. 
Um, yet it's expected to be a part-time job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, you're running an organization of 8,000 employees. Um, tell me a little bit about what your day is like and how you manage to balance all the different things that, that you have to you have to balance. Yeah, um, every day is different um, and you understand that. As an elected official, um, there's work I have to get done at City Hall to prepare for our weekly meetings where we pass legislation. Um, I also have two staff people that help make sure they keep um, the train on the tracks in terms of my legislation and that's, that's just absolutely critical because a huge portion of my job as a council member is being present with people out in the community. As you said, Columbus is a big city and I'm an at-large council member. All of us on Columbus City Council are. So we've got a lot of neighborhoods um, to be present in and a lot of people to um, talk with and, you know, to ask, to listen, and then to try to act on um, what they see the needs are in their real lives. So, you know, an average day, well, there's really no such thing as an average day, but okay, last week was my first week back from maternity leave because I had a um, another baby. Congratulations. Son, thank you. Um, so I'll just, it, these last two weeks have been different because I'm trying to catch up, but uh, I will select one of those days to give you just a general sense. So Mondays are crazy days because those are our, our meetings where we pass legislation. And um, I'll usually start with um, like a coffee with somebody um, who wants to um, either get more involved in a certain policy area or I'm the chair of our finance committee, which means um, the budget comes through my committee. And oftentimes there are meetings with people who want to ask for money. They want budget. Yeah, budget time. <laughs> the lines are long. Yep, yep. And then um, I usually try to get some kind of lunch meeting in to also do something like that. I'll have a couple hours um, at City Hall um, to review stuff for that evening. A lot of the review has taken place the, the prior week. We uh, last This week, this Monday, I had a um, group of people from Planned Parenthood come down because we passed a resolution supporting Title X funding. Um, the Trump administration obviously just made the announcement that jeopardizes Title X funding. 10,000 residents of Columbus access reproductive health care through Title X funding. So had my meet and greet with them and a TV interview about the, um, the resolution uh, and got my talking points in order for that. And then in between all that, I also have to... Um, Pump twice a day because um, I'm nursing. <laughs> so uh, that first year of life with an infant is actually makes the schedule a lot harder. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and those little people come with a lot of stuff that has to be moved. They uh, sure with do. Them. They sure do. Being a, a city council member, it's a political job, um, but it's and we are in strange political times and mm-hmm. scary political times. Yeah. Tell me about the sort of conversations you're having with regular citizens, people in your city, uh, where where there's local government, there's expectation of potholes and fire and police and all the things you do, but we're also in these crazy political times. How are, how are you, what's the conversations like yeah. uh, with your, with your, with your residents? Yeah, well, people come to us with all kinds of needs, um, kind of regardless of what our um, jurisdiction is. And um, for example, in 2017, Uh, after Trump took office and changed the enforcement priorities um, for ICE, 
for Immigration and Customs Enforcement. We heard a lot of stories of fear from families, immigrant families here. We heard uh, stories of tragedy. Um, one in particular stands out, a father who his, his wife was at work that day and it was his day home with the baby and they traded off and on because they had shift jobs. Um, and he was with his eight month old baby. Ice came, uh, told him that he needed to come with them and he had to take his eight month old baby over to his neighbor's house and leave the baby there because he was being taken away. Um, I went, I've gone to ICE check-ins with mothers who talked to me about you know, their children thriving in our city, adding to our economy and, and, be, and being a part of our future, right? So immigration isn't quote unquote a local issue. Those rules are written at the federal level and enforced at the federal level but it became incumbent on us to think about the impact. Immigrants and refugees in Columbus, uh, one in 10 of our residents is an immigrant or a refugee. They're two and a half times more likely to start a business, um, a small business. They pay hundreds of millions of dollars in state and local taxes, and they contribute almost $2 billion in spending power in our economy. So it is a local issue. And what's in our power to actually do. We looked at some examples from across the country to understand detention proceedings and what families went through, how it's scary for families at home and how it's disorienting for the, the immigrant in proceedings. Uh, it's one of the few legal proceedings where you can be jailed behind bars, see a judge, get sentenced and never have a lawyer. You technically have access to a lawyer, but there's no guarantee you get one. And if you're in jail, that means you're not working, which means you have no income to, to pay a lawyer. So we looked at what we can do playing within the rules that are, set, that are set out before us and started an immigrant legal defense fund called the Columbus Families Together Fund. We got some private matching dollars for it. And um, the county jail in Southwest Ohio, where most of our immigrants are detained, um, if you are from Franklin County, then uh, today you are able to have representation because of the fund that we put together. That's great in what is a terrible situation. Yeah. yeah, I sat through workshops where we had uh, parents signing, you know, powers of attorney for their kids. Yep. So if they're taken and it's just shattering to, to see that. Um, how do you find hope in the midst of the, the dysfunction and pain, both not only in terms of sort of bad policy on immigration, but just in terms of seeing our the, the sort of institutions and our democracy at risk. Where, yeah. where do you see hope that keeps you involved and getting up every day? You could, there's a lot of ways you could spend your time, but you chose to spend it in political office and public service. What, what keeps you going? Well, I don't always see the hope, you know? I mean, I do think it's uh, it's very easy to get depressed reading the national news and to be, you know, embarrassed is putting it lightly. Um, in terms of how our, our president behaves on the world stage, the decisions he makes every day on the domestic stage that impact so many people's lives inside my community and outside my community. Um, so I'm not, I'm not always hopeful, that's for sure. I think what keeps me excited to work every day and committed to working every day is that I do have my corner of the, the world that I can affect. And the great thing about serving in office and why I encourage anyone with the inkling to do it, um, you know, to, to, to take a shot and run is that you, 
it's really at its baseline about constituent services and understanding real people. Like no law is just words on a paper in, you know, in black and white. It's always about the people who are affected on the other end of that. And sometimes when we craft something with the most straightforward intentions, it's still not interpreted correctly in the real world. So we have people calling us all the time for help with this or that issue. Uh, an elderly woman was consistently turned down by one of the departments in, in our city through no fault of their own, but just the way they were reading um, an ordinance, consistently turned down when she asked to get recycling picked up at her house. We have a, a recycling policy in the city of Columbus that's automatic and it's free for um, households, not for mo- like not large apartment complexes. The owner of that ha- would have to pay for it, but for households. And something about the way her house was categorized and the auditor's site or something, they were turning her down. And she called my office frustrated and we went to bat for her and we talked it through and um, I knew exactly where her house was when she called. I knew what that address was and I knew it should qualify. And she now gets her recycling picked up every week. So it, it's, it's actually transformative for her daily life. She's an elderly woman. She can't, you know, haul her recycling to another part of town. And um, as small as that sounds, it's a cool part of this job. That makes a, yeah, it makes a big difference. Tell me about, tell me about another good day in office. Like what was, what was your, what's been your best day so far where you My felt like you made an impact? Um, I got to say when we passed the Columbus Families Together Fund, that was a pretty big one. Um, I really felt like we made an impact um, with families that I'd met before, you know? Um, So that was a a really big one. Um, We also passed one of my... My first ordinances that I passed um, after assuming office was actually to help crack down on harassment outside of our uh, women's health clinics. So um, whether you work there, whether you're a patient or whether you're an escort to help get patients safely in, you're just opened up to all kinds of harassment. And um, it is sometimes scary, it's sometimes violent. And so we put a pretty simple ordinance in place that just increased the penalties for obstructing access to um, uh, health clinics. And we had to do it in a way where, you know, we're not allowed to do a buffer zone. You know, we had to like kind of navigate all this constitutional stuff. Um, So we know it made a difference and we're really happy about that. But when we passed it, the people who came out to testify, it was so gratifying. All three speakers were... were, not just clergy, they, some some congregants, but they all came with like a religious um, underpinning to their conviction that women should have access to these services. And it was really cool to see because so often the right thinks that they have a monopoly on the role that faith plays in our lives. And especially when you're talking about um, uh, women's choice, women's reproductive choices. So that was a pretty great day. That was a good day. Columbus is the literal and metaphorical center of the country. Yeah. Um, tell us what people on the coast may not know or grasp about what's going on in the in the middle of the country that if we understood, we could build broader coalitions or, or just do a better job in speaking to all Americans. I, I think that, um, well, first of all, Columbus itself, it leans heavily democratic. Um, our county leans majority Democratic. 
our region is pretty um, split down the middle. Um, and then you look at the state and it's slightly conservative, although very much a place where Democrats can win. So I, I think what people on the coast should understand about Ohio as a whole, and then our fair city of Columbus, is that you can stand for social justice and civil rights. You don't have to assign yourself one place on the political spectrum, stand with your convictions, stand with your values, but also talk about people's economic future, talk about their families. All of our cities in Ohio look very different from one another, let alone across the country. We have very diverse cities, you know, cities of 20,000 and cities of 2 million. But fundamentally, they all have the same needs that families want to be able to provide for their kids um, give their kids a better life than they themselves had, uh, be able to go on vacation once a year. That's pretty basic stuff. And it's a good North Star when we're talking about public policy making. Uh, last year, security officers downtown, so multiple sites, won a new contract. SEIU Local One organized their contract. They won a new contract. And it was multiple management site, multiple management companies and multiple sites. And I was talking to those new union members about what this union would mean for them. And it would mean they'd get an actual paid vacation. That before this union, now their wages were not very high, um, but they never had the ability to take time off um, and enjoy time with their families. I think that's a what many of us consider kind of a fundamental part of being an American is being able to be with our families and not fear that that sacrifices our economic future. That's a great that's a great message and a great reminder. So you've seen politics at the state level and the federal level through your family. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you're now active at, in local politics. Where do you see as the you know there's a big argument going on that cities can save the world, yeah. S- uh, smart cities uh, like Columbus yes. was just awarded. Um, where do you see the future of American politics, and then also where's the future for your politics? Cities have tremendous power. There's a great assumption at the heart of governing in a city, which is that you live, work, and play with your co-collaborators all the time, co-conspirators, right? So, um, you know, the the head of the YWCA, which helps run um, our family homelessness operation, is at the same event as one of our major CEOs and is in the same conversations as I am, you know, as a public official. And you see them at the grocery store and uh, it really solidifies this we're in it together kind of attitude. And I think that's where cities excel. You are never separate from your work. You live inside your work all the time. Now, for better or worse, because sometimes you just want to go to the grocery store, buy a gallon of milk, and go yeah. home. <laughs> but it is um, why I—it's part of why I think cities have emerged as you know in this motto of cities are going to save the world because we have no option. We live inside our work. That said, it is harmful when people are working against our interests at other levels, so state and federal. And I talked a little bit about the example of in the immigration case where the federal rules are set up in a way that we can't affect, but we do what we can. It's, we shouldn't have to face that you know, puzzle 
of how can we work our way through this and help save families. So we rely on better policies coming from the federal government. Same for the state government. Under Republican rule, um, they have continued to hollow out the local government fund, which is a really important part of how we make government work on a local level. For us to have the flexibility to do things like fight the opioid crisis, we need partners at every single level. So I have a hard time answering that question because I, I am optimistic and I believe in the power of cities, but I don't want to pretend that we can do it alone. We cannot. We need better people at the state and federal level. At some point, at, at, at this, you, we can do a lot at the city uh, and the county level, but we just can't be uh, constantly fighting yep. <laughs> our state and federal partners. That's exactly I mean, like, right. You know, it, it, even if they just left us alone, benign neglect would be uh, would be <laughs> yeah. helpful sometimes. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and then your future, uh, where you know, where where do you see yourself as serving? Uh, you know, putting your talents to use. I, you know, I don't really, I don't know. I, I love my job. I absolutely love being a city council member. And I know that's like what everybody's supposed to answer. Every politician's supposed to answer that when they're asked. Right. It's truly um, the truth for me. I have a three-month-old son, a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, um, and my family is deeply important to me. So my my determination and my choices for what I may run for in the future will um, be based first and foremost on uh, whether it works for my family and secondly, on whether I'll love the job because I love this job. I truly do. And um, I don't want to run for some quote unquote higher office if it doesn't give me the ability to love my work the way that I do now. Yeah, it's, uh, I tell people all the time, local government, you make the biggest impact on your community and your home at night. That's right. With your kids, which is something to, that's, that's not something to take for granted. Well, thank you very much for taking the time. Um, let me just say this is my first time to Columbus. It's an extraordinary city. Thank it's, you. it's really, uh, really a wonderful city. Um, your minor league baseball team couldn't quite pull off the win last night, oh, uh, yeah. but it was close. Yeah. Uh, but, um, so, but thank you for taking time and thank you for all the work you're doing on behalf of your families and setting a model for local governments across the country. Thank you so much, Ryan. This was really fun. My pleasure. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal podcast, an organization dedicated to supporting innovative policymakers and ideas to solve our most challenging problems. Check out newdealleaders.org slash ideas for innovative policies that you can bring to your city or state. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produced this podcast. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we're keeping this honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast. Mm-hmm.